Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Esther Dadao, and she is the author of Hot Pants and Spandex Suits, Gender Representation in American Superhero Comic Books. This is published in 2021 by Rutgers University Press, and it is a really interesting and and complex analysis of what we see in comic books with regard to gender, with regard to race, um, with regard to othering. Um, But I'm going to let Esther tell us a lot about that as we talk about her awesome book. Hi, Esther. Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself and how you came to this really fascinating project. Um, So the book is actually like a a rewrite of my doctoral thesis. Um, So I'm originally from Belgium and I came to the UK to do my PhD on uh, superheroes specifically. And it's... um, it's a very classic story amongst comic scholars, which is that we started reading comics maybe a bit later, maybe a bit later in life than some fans. Um, so during our masters, and you're, you're you're thinking about research, exploring research. At the same time, you're tumbling into comics. You're getting into more and more different titles every month, and it kind of starts snowballing all together. And then you end up writing about comics. Um, and writing about superheroes, and you end up doing a doctoral project on it. Um, I think I very much came into it thinking, like, I really wanted to do my PhD um, on gender studies uh, and thinking about othering and things like that. And when I was was reading lots of comics at the time, I just felt a very natural um, kind of thing to just start writing about them. Um, And then I started thinking more concretely about which superheroes I'd want to talk about specifically. And at the time that I was first envisioning this project, like the first Avengers film had come out. And so it was kind of really kicking off um, like Captain America and Iron Man as being the big, big names in Marvel comics. Um, And so I kind of started there and then obviously ended on some of the big names in DC that have been popular for so long. So Superman, Wonder Woman, etc. The original project had a chapter on Batman in it um, that got dropped because I, I very quickly had my supervisor tell me, you're trying to do too much. There's too much in this in this project now. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where it went. And then I, as I sort of finalized um, the chapters in terms of, oh, I want to talk about gay superheroes as well. I want to talk about black superheroes as well. I then kind of naturally fell onto some popular and well-known superheroes like Storm, Black Panther, and then um, Batwoman at the time. Uh, so yeah, that was that's kind of how it all kind of came together. Um, and then then I then I graduated, and then I spent three years turning it into a book that people could read. <laughs> <laughs> As one does with the doctoral dissertation, I I know yeah. that experience. Um, but this is a really interesting book in, in terms of digging into these questions of of representation in the comic books. And I wanted to ask you first to talk a little bit about how you, you're specifically focusing on the comic books themselves and you make a case for this as opposed to a lot of the visual presentations in film and television. Can you explain why you narrowed it in on that particular focus, which is not narrow, um, but (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so it is kind of that thing where you do have to draw a line somewhere. I mean, um, I, I, ideally, I would have written on everything uh, uh, all at once. Um, and there are um, books, a lot of books now, that talk about specific characters and how they differ across comics, but also film. And that's a, those are some really interesting projects happening there. Um, but I think for me, it was kind of, I had to draw a line and I really wanted to focus on the specificity of comic books as a visual medium. And specifically because um, there's so much translation work that happens when you're changing something that is a book or a comic, and then you're changing that to, I don't know, like a film or a TV series. There's so much changing that needs to happen um, because you can't tell the same story in the same way. And so many TV and, and, and shows and films are seen as adaptations of the comic book. But I was kind of really drawn to this comic book as kind of the origins of the superhero as a figure um, and, to kind, and, and the massive impact that this has had on versions of the superhero in books and TV, of course. It's, a, it's really interesting and I, I kind of wish that I'd had the ability to incorporate a bit more on TV and films later down the line because certainly from like the 1990s onwards, um, you've actually had the phenomenon where TV shows and films and books have started influencing the comics. So two very famous examples are Harley Quinn was originally a character in the Batman animated series. She wasn't added into the comics until she proved to be a very popular character in that series. And then Nick Fury used to be a white character. And then when Samuel Jackson was cast, um, they changed him into a black character in the comics. So there's lots of really fascinating communication now or interplay between these various mediums. Um, but at the time when I was starting out, uh, I was very much drawn to this idea of uh, comic books is where it all started. So that's where I want to start and kind of make my way through. So I do kind of reference TVs and films as is appropriate throughout the book. But yeah, I, I do very much try to keep that tight focus on comics because there is so much material there anyway. <laughs> so even in comics, you have to make quite brutal cuts sometimes on what you can and cannot include. And and that was also one of my questions for you in terms of you sort of set up your research or at least the book research in a kind of case study method. Um, and and so you you selected various uh, comic superheroes to to really draw your focus to um, what was the reasoning to sort of make it into that kind of a case study method of analysis? I, 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 to, to be completely honest, like, cause I could, I could dress this up in very academic terms, of course, but to be completely honest, it's just cause I wanted to talk about specific characters that I really liked reading literally. it, <laughs> And then the, kind of the justification for that came after. Um, but also to, 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 to do the, the academic thing. Um, I did pick case studies because I, I really wanted to kind of encompass um, a lot of time. So like if, if the, the start of comics is like the early 1940s, late 1930s, depending on who you pick as the defining uh, start of superhero comics until right up until now, that's 80 plus years. So that's a really long stretch of time to be doing research on. Um, so, and especially if you're then talking about comics in general, or even the superhero in general, the sheer amount of material that there would be. So again, you're making choices. And I think for me, it was like, I want to make, I want to be able to talk about this really long period and I want to be able to do it in quite a focused way and doing it through a specific character and watching how they specifically evolved 
I thought would be really interesting because the idea is that they, they still have to be superheroes. So what is it about them that makes them superheroes, even if they go through some changes that take them really far away from what people think of when they think of the superhero? So um, it's unfortunately something I hadn't, again, I had to cut from the book. Um, but So Wonder Woman goes went through a period in the 1960s and 1970s where she didn't wear the Wonder Woman costume and was mostly known as Diana Prince. Um, and she like was like a, a detective who had a, a boutique, like a, a clothing shop. Um, and that's like a really fabulous time. But then the question is, well, how is she still a superhero if she doesn't have her superpowers, doesn't have a costume, doesn't have her superhero code name, any of the things that make her a superhero? Uh, how is she still recognizably a superhero when she could just be an action hero or, um, you know, a, a spy or something like that? Um, so for me, it kind of really went down into that kind of what makes the superhero a superhero and what does that idea of the superhero then tell us about gender and race or the other way around? Like, what do our ideas about gender and race tell us who a superhero is or what a superhero looks like? Um, so, yeah, that's kind of why I was like, I'm, 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 one, I want to talk about these characters because I love reading them. Um, but two, I also think that will give me kind of the best way of looking at a real evolution over time. And in in that context, I mean, you do basically say that there's a historical trajectory that transpires because of the way that comic books as a commodity operated, that they were very popular during the Second World War period, and then they sort of declined in popularity or people weren't buying them as much. And then they had, you know, a revival. What what is it about the sort of early history in particular that these these ages um, that sort of shapes at least um, some of the ideas with regard to the gender projections that we see in superheroes? So I think it's like it's that thing where you, you can't separate the art or the storytelling from the commercial perspectives of the companies. So it's one of these things where you're constantly trying to appeal to an audience. So I think it's one of these things where, and especially um, during the Comic Code Authority um, time period, it's all about we need to appeal to the audience in the right way. And that means that we need to simultaneously regurgitate all the norms and values and gender roles um, that you know our, our mainstream audience desires but then we might increasingly have a more vocal fan base that desires more progressive storylines so we have to kind of be able to rope them in as well um so adrian risha and i hope i'm saying her name correctly talks about this uh, a little bit in her blue age of comic books um work uh, which is all about the fact that we've entered a new age of comic books which is dominated by the digital domain not just through digital readers, but also through the fact that most fan communication now occurs online. Um, And it's all about the cultural capital that something has. So like a really good example is um, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones dominated online uh, discourse for like ages. And then it was so, the ending was so bad that it basically vanished from cultural discourse and companies generally couldn't unload all the merchandise they had for it. People just weren't buying it anymore. 
So cultural capital, the on, its online presence is now a really important metric that companies use to invest in whatever. Um, so when we, when we then link that back to, um, you know, gender roles or progressive values or, you know, how we talk about race in, in this art specifically, you have to keep in mind that a lot of these companies are trying to simultaneously cater to perhaps a more old-fashioned traditional fan base and at the same time bring in uh, this new vocal online fandom that is, you know, people who want more women, want more characters of color, want to see uh, less sexism, less racism in the comic books. So there's that dichotomy, that tension that is kind of constantly at play. And you do see that, that that's happened traditionally over the years as well in the past, especially in like, um, I think it was the 60s and 70s when um, I think it was, oh, I can't remember his name now, but um, basically an editor at DC started including addresses when fans sent in their letters and the letters were then published in the back of the comic book. They would include letters, so fans started communicating with each other. And once that communication um, started getting going, that became a community, and then the community as a whole started communicating with the industry, with writers, with artists. And then from that, you have this new dialogue you know, free market research and a dialogue about what it is that fans really, really want. And kind of the online sphere is very similar to that now where creators have a direct pipeline to what is it that fans want and can we do that? Will the editors allow us to do that? Because at the end of the day, you know, Marvel still has to sign off on it. And Marvel is owned by the mouse now or its, its studios are. And that means that the comics have to be a little bit careful about what they do because they're so closely linked now. They mutually influence each other. So it, in terms of the fan bases that have, as you're talking about, sort of there's a there's the catering to a more traditional, what might be considered a more con- traditional, more conservative fan base that expects, you know, Superman to act a super way, a particular way and look a particular way. Um and and you talk about you know the the sort of projection of this kind of white masculinity um, that comes through so much of the superheroes, particularly from the early times. Um, how how has that idea and ideal um, sort of continued to shape our understanding of who gets to be a superhero? So I th- I think for me really the key aspect of white masculinity is crisis white masculinity is always in crisis there is a constant ongoing fear that men aren't manly enough anymore that the gains made by other demographics in society are reducing the white man's status um or whatever that that the sons are not as hardy and as strong as the fathers that is that is a continuous thing that you see throughout you know during the cold war you know people were worried that oh i'm not masculine enough because i've got an office job but my father fought in world war ii and then in the 60s it was like oh my son's a hippie he didn't have an office job like i had he didn't provide for his family like i have so there's this constant you know worry and fear that the next generation is softer than the one before and so our heroes are kind of our superheroes especially are kind of an antidote to that they're all about you know hardiness strength and that's why they're super because it's 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 blown up it's disproportionate like no real man has superman's abilities 
So there's that, that moment of crisis can be assuaged, forgotten. It can, it can be left behind because he is, you know, beyond comparison. And that's kind of what these superheroes really project, you know, this kind of amazing beyond the pale ability. And in terms of masculinity, it is then about the ultra masculine man. No one can ever beat him. No one will ever be stronger than him. He always comes out on top. He's he he stands for all those values that we associate with masculinity, self-reliance, hardiness, honor, etc. etc. So it's kind of really the project the projection of this kind of white masculinity that is idealized and super powerful. And, you know, taken to extremes, really, really toxic to people as well. Um, and one of the points that you make, and, and I've, I've seen this analysis in a couple of other places as well, is that because the, the initial writers of the Superman um, comic books were essentially Jewish immigrants to the United States, that they were also trying to communicate a kind of expanded whiteness um, in in the superheroes. Can you explain how that is presented? <laughs> so it's kind of, um, it's, it's one of the things where, so Su- Superman as an example, he's quite far divorced from his Jewish origins and he never really had, he, J- Superman himself was never Jewish. Um, so oh, it's, it's a tricky question that you've asked me there. So right. I, I, I will do my very best to, to, to kind of uh, elaborate. But um, it's essentially, the idea is that white passing throughout the years became the most important signifier of whiteness and through that white masculinity, right? So it's all, it's all about the, the what is sometimes called the racial bribe or um, the sexuality bribe, which is as long as you can pass convincingly enough as this one category, we won't treat you as what you actually are, which is this other category, which sounds really horrible. That's essentially kind of what happens. So it's like um, years and years and years ago, Irish people, for instance, weren't considered white and Jewish people weren't considered white. But a lot of the time now, if you are phenotypically in appearance wise white, people won't question that. And so whiteness is now very much no longer associated with Anglo-Saxon or Germanic ancestry. It is now associated with a phenotypically white appearance. Um, And it's kind of something that's happening now in what we see in a lot of online communities um, in regards to the sexual bribe, which is referred to as the pink washing of white nationalism, which is that if you are a white gay man, you can temporarily buy into these extreme right-wing circles by punching down on other categories or other demographics. So, you know, um, black people or uh, people with from Arabic descent, Jewish people, etc. Um, so it's this kind of, you sacrifice a part of yourself or a part of yourself is made invisible because you've chosen to punch down on a more visible other. And it's that punching down that will buy you acceptance into this group. And the horrible thing is, of course, that, that acceptance is always temporary. But in the moment, it doesn't appear that way. But it, but it is, it is temporary. And those groups will always inevitably other you again later down the line. Um, but so to bring that back to kind of to Superman, Superman was kind of part of a wave of popular figures who helped that kind of transition from 
Anglo-Saxon Germanic ancestry to phenotypically white appearance that really kind of happened during World War II because it was very much this kind of the idea of the American melting pot came to the fore. Um, we're, all white, we're all white Americans. Um, so our racism is good and decent, but Germany's racism is horrible and bad. Um, and it's that kind of the, the tension between those two things kind of setting off that change and that evolution of looking as us as together we're all white um, and not necessarily focusing on that ancestry element in quite the same way. And, and so in terms of the way that you trace this through the book, you start off with a discussion of white superheroes and mascul- masculinity, some of which we just talked about. Um, but then you transition to the white female body as the next sort of case study um, in looking at the transition from the male to the female in comic books. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw in terms of looking at the females in comics, particularly, obviously, the pro- the projection of white female bodies? So it's a thing that, like, um, white femininity, because of its whiteness, can afford to be less traditionally feminine than other women. Um, and you kind of see that happening now in... Um, so I think it was over the Olympics that quite a lot of black women were targeted and had to produce certificates for the level of hormones they were producing. That's kind of like a real world impact of that kind of visual dialogue where white women, because of their whiteness, are always seen as more female than other women. Um, And so like, but to bring that back to superheroes, um, so most female superheroes, including the white female superheroes, always are visually very traditionally feminine a lot of the time so they're very slim they might they might be big breasted but they're very slim um you know beautifully coiffed hair makeup all that they're always very they're always drawn very alluring and it's not until later on that that sexualization kind of drops down um so you have for instance gail simone's wonder woman um she so Gil Simone's the writer in, 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 in this instance, not the artist. Um, but the artist that she works with often depicted Wonder Woman as very um, muscular in, that, uh, in, in, in those comics. So it's one of these things where the muscularity, in a way, is transgressive because we still associate muscularity with masculinity, not just with strength. Um, it's, it's a physically powerful body. And that's usually missing from female superheroes. They have what is referred to as pose and point powers. You know, they strike a very alluring, sexy pose, and then something happens in the distance, and oh my god, they're so powerful. But they're never physically in the combat. They're not getting dirty. They're not getting bloody. They're not punching someone's face in. That's not feminine, so they don't do that. Um, and of course, in the eighties, with the rise of the you know bodybuilding action heroes, you did have in wider popular culture. Um, more, you know, physically combative female action heroes like, you know, Sigourney Weaver in the Alien films and um, Laura Connor in the Terminator films, the second one at least. Um, so that kind of became a thing and that also happened in comics as well. So physical violence against women became more common in the 80s. And so physical body types are a little bit more diverse now. So you do sometimes have a very 
you know, muscular Wonder Woman. Um, you can have muscular other characters as well. Uh, but it, that's mostly still very much white female superheroes. You don't have that, the black or um, Arab superheroes quite as much because it's still very much a visual medium that is catering to a, an, audi- an, an audience and the audience is still understood to be, you know, straight white boys. Whether that's actually true or not is, is, is a different discussion, but certainly culturally we think of a comic book audience as uh, a, a white straight boys club. So there is very much still that pressure to, to, to depict women as, you know, very sexy and alluring and not necessarily as someone who's super hench can and will punch your lights out that's not necessarily what some I mean I'm sure some men do find that attractive but you know maybe not traditionally considered to be a money-making uh, thing to do um, and and they may also feel like that's going to be uh, a threat um, obviously um, oh yeah you, you can't have a female superhero who's so buff that she looks like she could intimidate the male superheroes you can't have that Wonder Woman can, but she's the exception because when she does it, it's sexy, but no one else can. That's the rule. And and I understand is my, my own research tends to be in film and television, but the the rendering in film and television of the action by many of the female superheroes is off screen. You often yeah. see the result of that, but you don't actually see it the same way that you do see Iron Man or Captain America getting into it with others and face to face and fist to fist combat. So the translation is, is sort of very much present from comics to the film adaptations. Um, That's why the Batwoman um, comic, when it was written by Greg Ruka and his um, creative team. um, So interesting because you had panels and close-ups of Kate's uh, Batwoman's face when she was working out and she'd be like, we like getting in there bared teeth, scrunching up her face. You'd see her get hit. You'd see her get bloody. And there was that kind of very, and an almost an, an almost like really appealing physicality to it. But then it was also like, yeah, but she's a lesbian. So is, does that mean she's allowed? Is that kind is that like this kind of weird stereotype coming to the fore? Um, and on the other hand, are we over-policing that because, because it is a lesbian character? So we're looking at her, we have much more expectations of her of what she needs to do as a character. So yeah, and and so and you also take up and so it's not just the gender representation that you take up in this book with regard to male and female, but you also spend a lot of time discussing the LGBTQ um, integration over time, shall we say, um, mm-hmm. of of characters in the comic books who are not necessarily straight. Um, and, and white, but certainly not necessarily straight. How did these, how did these characters sort of come along? Um, you know, what, what was the impetus that the comic writers sort of said, oh, we need, we actually need a gay character. So I think I, I will definitely bring this back to fan engagement. So very much so, you know, the, the stories that fans demand that are written that they want to read because I think it's one of these things where, um, especially in the 60s and 70s, when the Comics Code Authority was kind of like losing its power. And that was partly because fans were coming out and saying, but I want to read something that is 
weird and radical, um, yeah, violent, sure, because that's the medium that we're in, but also something that really, you know, pushes past these boundaries that have been put on us. Um, so I think that's kind of a lot of where, it, uh, where we're initially started. And also there is, of course, the prestige of being able to say, oh, but we did the first gay character, you know. Um, so once it kind of became um, more addressed in mainstream media, that kind of opened the doors for comics to start doing it. Because of the CCA, they kind of had to wait for social norms to shift before they could get in there. Um, and then now as well, I think a lot of online fan engagement is pushing that drive to we want to do more, we want to see more. Um, so I think that's kind of very much the case there. And I think certainly with um, Batwoman, there was very much the, the the promotional material very much promised, oh, you know, we've got a character. She's going to join our A-list. You know, this isn't someone who's going to be lounging in the B-list, like the question or um, Green Arrow. I'm going to have some angry Green Arrow fans writing to me about putting him in the B-list. But, you know, she's going to be up there with Superman and Batman and she's going to be amazing. And she's a lesbian. Oh, my God, look at us. Look at how progressive we are. And then the Justice League title she was going to join wasn't a title. It became a miniseries. And then it kind of, like, not the reverse of snowballs, basically. It kind of lost momentum. So I think there's definitely um, that kind of prestige impulse there as well. Like, oh, we were the first. We have this. Look at what we're doing. Look at what Marvel's not doing, basically. Um, So this kind of, um, yeah, like being able to say, we did it first because there is such an obsession with history and record keeping and continuity keeping within the community. It's that collector's mindset. So, you know, the, the, the very much financial impetus of people buying a comic because then they can say, oh, but I had the very first issue of this very first gay character uh, that DC ever did, you know. So there's that aspect to consider as well. But I also think that, yeah, and to go back to the, it is just fan engagement, I think, a lot of the time, because you do have creators who come out and say, oh, but this character is gay. It wasn't addressed in the comic. There wasn't the space for that, but this character is gay. And that's usually through a conversation with fans at a convention or with an interview that that comes out. So it's very much this kind of, there, there, there is a thirst in fandom for these stories, and there is a financial element that comes into play as well. So, yeah. Um, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, and I learned about this from your book in particular. The CCA um, is a body that was created to um, sort of keep us safe from comics. Uh, oh, yes. And, and not everybody is aware of this body. <laughs> Could you explain a little bit about it and how it got here and what's it doing now? So it's um, oh, it's a it's a basically like back in the nineteen forties, right? So um, comics become really really popular, great. Their content is also becoming increasingly violent. Um, parents start picking up on this. So back in nineteen forty eight, the comics industry is like, all right, yeah, yeah, we're going to set up a little code, and we're going to do some self regulating as an industry, and then that immediately failed because there were no real consequences attached to breaking any of these regulations they were trying to set up. But it was kind of already too late as well, because um, at the same time, there was a huge moral panic about the state of children in America. 
So this kind of thing, like their parents had been away to fight at war during some of their formative years. Um, so these were very independent adolescents and children. And there was a general, a genuine moral panic about like juvenile crime. So the facts show that there actually wasn't a rise in the actual amount of juvenile crime that was occurring. There was a rise in the brutality and severity of the few cases of juvenile crimes there were, but there wasn't like a wave of juvenile panic overtaking the nation. But if you listened to the news or read the newspaper, you would think that there was. You'd think that, you know, there were you know, girls of 14 having children everywhere and boys of 15 stabbing anyone who looked at them funny. That's what you would think. So enter Frederick Wortham, um, who is a child psychologist. And he, he very much gets painted as a villain in like comic study circles a little bit. But he, he genuinely was very concerned with, um, you know, children's health and the, the exposure to mass media in general. So not just comic books. He was genuinely concerned about the racism, sexism and violence that children and adolescents were constantly being exposed to through mass media. So comics were a really easy target because they were already part of the national conversation of, because parents had so little control over comics, you know. They were extremely cheap. Children would buy them with their own pocket money, take them to school and swap them. So adults really didn't have any kind of control over that in their children's lives. Um, and so that kind of created this perfect storm. So he starts campaigning to, 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 to um, get comics book, comic books banned. There's a, um, a Senate committee on juvenile crime uh, in the 1950s, where he's where Frederick Wortham and some comic book industry professionals testify. The um, Senate committee concludes that actually uh, comic books are not directly responsible for the rise in crime, but it heavily implies that it's you know a contributing factor. So people everywhere start banning comic books, um, and of course you know that gets challenged in court, and it's not constitutional, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so these fail, but there's book burnings of comic books happening everywhere. Church groups are organizing um, mass burnings of comic books and things like that. So the industry basically caves and says, all right, we've got to do something about this. And they form the Comics Code Authority. And yeah, that's kind of how it came to be. And it controlled and very strongly controlled the industry for quite a long time. Um, and it, it, it determined the kind of nudity, the nudity you could show, which was none. Um, the gender roles you could show, which was traditional, um, the the um, treatment of characters who weren't white uh, had to be respectfully, but that kind of white anxiety about even depicting racism meant that, you know, characters of any colour and that wasn't white just got dropped immediately um, because even storylines trying to, you know, discuss racism and show its evils were rejected by the Comics Code Authority. And it was a real expensive process to go through because you had to pay a membership fee yearly and you had to pay a, sub a, a submission fee every single time you submitted uh, a comic for approval. And they could send it back with revisions. And um, basically, if you then had to end up spending a lot of time revising, if you had to go through that process several times, it could mean that you missed the publication date for that specific issue, which meant that you couldn't charge your... Um, advertisement spaces at full rate. And so several 
like small time comic book production companies folded in that uh, environment. And you couldn't really circumvent the CCA because they give you a stamp of approval. And lots of retailers refused to stack shelves with um, issues that didn't have that stamp of approval. So they kind of really had them in a chokehold. And there, was only, there were only a few comic book producers like um, Dell. They had uh, a line of educational comics and they were like, oh, no, 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 we've always been very, very nice and very much above reproach. And I'm not going to associate my brand with your disreputable brand by going through the CCA. So they could kind of afford to do that, but most comic book companies couldn't. Um, and EC um, folded as a result. Um, and I think, I think they're the ones who then ended up doing Mad Magazine. Um, and that's kind of their villain origin story, as it were, because <laughs> they got destroyed by the CCA. And the CCA, though, as you note in the book, has sort of declined in regard to its authority and kind of doesn't really operate anymore. I mean, I don't, I couldn't actually, to be completely honest, I couldn't tell you if they still existed. I probably did Google it at the time that I published the book, but I couldn't tell you now um, because they, they just, they don't really matter anymore. No one has the stamp anymore. No one has to do it anymore because, and I think they, they kind of really stopped operating at the late eighties, early nineties, because you all, not only, um, was societal mores changed to such an extent that there really wasn't that kind of panic about, you know, violence in comic books anymore. But also you had the direct market. So you had comic book shops that specialized in just having comic books and they wouldn't refuse to pop, to carry stuff without the CCA because most of these shops were owned by fans who wanted the more gruesome stuff in the first place, you know? Um, so yeah, it was kind of the CCA kind of got its legs sweeped out from under them and just didn't have the same power that they used to because of changing social mores and then the direct market. And then even after the direct market kind of collapsed, um, they just didn't get their power back. And I, I, I don't know if they're still operational at the moment. But they're not really relevant. So. <laughs> no. So yeah, I, I guess they just, you can ignore them if you, if you should wish to. Yes. Um, but they, you, one of the things that you talk about that they do is not only is, is, are they, eliminating any like forms of nudity or um or sort of even discussions of racism is that they also are really kind of narrowing the scope for the activities that women can have in the comics i mean they they are still superheroes but in their alter ego lives that they are supposed to be very traditional how does that sort itself out within the narrative storylines of the comics that are written so um like a really good example, I think, would be Sue Storm from the Fantastic Four. So she's a superhero, but she's very much framed as being the mom of the team, you know. So she fulfills that very traditional role. Um, and she's also very often overcome by her powers and kind of passes out or faints because she's extended them too far. Uh, or you have Supergirl, who um, has a string of boyfriends, nothing ever too racy has lots of magical adventures, but she's never fully in control of her powers. She needs her cousin Superman to come help her out. Um, she's just a teenager, really. Uh, and so it's that kind of making sure that women are framed within that traditional um, kind of role. And it kind of negates the transgression of their superhero abilities. So let's take Wonder Woman, for instance, because it's hard to imagine Wonder Woman as being put into 
one of those roles because she's Wonder Woman. But in the 1950s, like her obsession with Steve Trevor was never as great as as it was back then. And this constant like, oh, but what if he likes Diana Prince more than he likes Wonder Woman? How dare he? But you are Diana Prince though. That's you. What is that? (laughs) So this kind of threesome, women can't be friends with each other to the extent that they're even jealous of their own alter ego. Or they would do these storylines where through the magical machinery of um, Paradise Island where all the Amazons live, you have Wonder Woman and then her herself from when she was a baby, Wonder Tot, and then herself when she was like a, a child slash semi-teenager, Wonder Girl, and then her mum, Queen Hippolyta, and they would all come together to fight whatever was threatening them on the day. So it was very much just, oh, it's the family coming together, these marvellous women um, coming together to save the day. And, yeah, so it, it was kind of this, under the guise of fantastical and whimsy-like storylines, you'd have these kind of consistent messaging of women are just girls, really, or women are just mothers, really. Or, you know, it doesn't matter that you have superheroes, you still have to babysit your own self from when you were a baby because that's just your natural caregiving role there's a really great one where um steve trevor has a dream and you don't realize he's having the dream until like the comic at the end of the comic but basically in it he finally convinces wonder woman to marry him and it's one of these things where um they 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 they, they bump into a couple uh on the way to the ceremony so um and they're trying to get married but calamity has overtaken them so diana gives them her dress and then they on the way to their honeymoon and they come into, they bump into a couple who've crashed their car. So Diana gives them the car. And then Diana um, is like, oh, I'll make us a dinner. You just relax now that we're finally here. And then he comes out and turns out she doesn't know how to cook because she's lived on Paradise Island and been a Wonder Woman obviously all this time. So it's kind of this, this horrible nightmare that Steve Trevor has that's played off for laughs about how horrible or why she would be. And that kind of helps sustain the tension of, oh, but I can't marry you, Steve. I can't marry you until I've, you know, changed the world, until I've fulfilled all my duties as as Wonder Woman. And this kind of funny um, issue actually kind of goes, well, actually, yeah, it, it, she's never going to marry him because, one, her duties as Wonder Woman will never end. But also, she would actually be a terrible wife. Like, the, the fear and the horror of that is kind of part of that 1950s storyline. And and Wonder Woman fighting with Diana Prince, I I over Steve Trevor also I think would fail the Bechdel test, wouldn't it? It would, it would for sure. I don't think any <laughs> of the nineteen fifties Wonder Woman stories passed the Bechdel test. Maybe when the Holiday Girls. So basically, um, Diana is like the I I don't know like the the chancellor or like the nominary president of like the sorority called the Holiday Girls. Um, it's the first, uh, it's, it's where Atta Candy got, um, got created as a character. And so some, some of that is about them, you know, oh, it's just good, wholesome fun. And we're going to, uh, me, Wonder Woman, we're going to show you guys how to exercise. It's important to maintain your figure. So I guess that technically would pass the Bech, the Bechdel test. Um, but like, certainly not in the spirit that the test was created. <laughs> Um, and the last the last case study that you you pay attention to, which is more about obviously race 
um, than it is about gender, but it is, you know, sort of the way that the comic books have created this stereo, the stereotype of the male, the white male, and then everybody is a kind of other from it. Mm. Um, and you, you talk a lot about how the presentation of the, of, of black superheroes, particularly black Panther and Wakanda, um, is still from a white perspective. Um, and, and so can you explain a little bit about what you saw in terms of that particular case study and how it's, you know, fitting into this broader picture of the representation within the superhero comics? So, so, so Black Panther really was kind of, um, created to, with this idea of presenting blackness, like outside of whiteness, cause he's from a country that was never colonized, et cetera. Um, but uh, Martin Lund, I think it was, did an excellent analysis of um, like the introductory issue of Black Panther, where the Fantastic Four first go to Wakanda. And they very much describe it as like being on a Hollywood set. Um, so there's this kind of Wakanda as supposedly being a supremely advanced nation, um, still being described in terms of savagery and exoticism. And yet at the same time, um, extremely technologically um, advanced. So this idea of, you know, technology being the end-all, be-all of all um, progress, really. So it's kind of very Western idea of what it means to be an advanced civilization, which is access to consumer technology, probably. Um, so you have that kind of um, um, image of Wakanda and Black Panthers being its leader. And I think the issue um, that... I have with Black Panther is that a lot of the time you see him divorced from Wakanda. A lot of the comics actually take him out of Wakanda and he's meant to be their king, their sovereign. He's meant to fight for their um, civil rights. And, 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 and certainly at, at times he does fight and represent Wakandan interests abroad for sure. But a lot of the comics that I've read, um, very much talk about the tension between oh but all his friends are the avengers so they're all these white americans he's just constantly hanging out with these white americans and he's torn between the demands of his nation and like oh but my friend captain america said it was cool so i don't know why you guys aren't thrilled about this development um so there's that 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 tension where true good the objective good in comics is mostly almost always aligned with white masculinity the white male hero determines what is good what is right and very often that is the defense of the status quo and we live in a racist world and so if you have a hero who's dis who's defending the status quo he's basically defending the way that the racist world works and operates so if you put a black character in there who also is meant to be a superhero and therefore also aligned with the comics idea of objective good, which is defending the status quo. It's very hard to portray a black character who is truly fighting for black people's best interests, or in Black Panther's case, Wakandan interests. Because to fight for Wakandan interests would inevitably put him in opposition to the white male superhero and therefore cast him as the villain. Because a lot of comic books don't allow for a more nuanced uh, take on morals than black, you know, black versus white, good versus white, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's really difficult, I think, for black superheroes um, to 
be seen as oh, I can't remember who coined it now, but this idea of, of of the real black superhero is someone who campaigns for his people's best interests against this the, the status quo, and therefore are any of the black superheroes that we have real black superheroes? That's kind of the the the, the question, and it's I think it's one of these things where the more you have a creative team that is very in touch with these issues and therefore the more diverse your creative team is if you give black people a voice and you know well no they have a voice if you give black people a platform and control over this black superhero the more likely are it you are to have a more authentic story that kind of does talk about these things more about what it means to be a black superhero in our very kind of white world um, and it's very difficult then to assert um, a very powerful black masculinity because we have defined masculinity as the person who's always on top, but because we've also defined that as white masculinity, the black ma- the black male superhero kind of will always, within the comics internal logic, fall underneath that. So there's that constant struggle of we want to make a superhero who is black. That's great. That's perfect. But the gender roles and the racial structure that you that that we have created within the comic kind of doesn't allow for that because we put the male white superhero at the very top of of, of the hierarchy. So it's that constant tension, that constant battle. Um, the that, patriarchy that is on still in. there. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and it's it's very hard to create something that can be completely disconnected from that pre-existing structure. You know. Um. I, I have one question that I'm really I really want to hear from you on. You you said that you started this as your dissertation and you were interested in gender studies, but you specifically then wanted to do work on comics. What did you find in your research that really surprised you? Something that really surprised me. Gosh, I feel I feel oh it's 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 been so long now, um, but I think. I think what really surprised me was actually, and I, I, I will admit to this, is the sheer amount of black superheroes that actually are out there. Um, and I think it's one of the things where I just didn't have any attention for it prior to my research. I wasn't paying attention to it. It wasn't something that was on my radar. Uh, and then I started doing research into it. And there are, there are so many, and so many that actually have had a real lasting impact on the genre and that have since faded into obscurity. So um, during the black during the popularity of the black exploitation era, you actually had loads of black superhero characters, and some of them have been kind of recovered, like Luke Cage, and um, but others have just kind of completely vanished. But there there were and are so many more out there, and they were politically significant. They were significant to the industry, but they've kind of just vanished. And you have a lot of scholars now doing the very important work of excavating these heroes and talking about them, writing to, writing about them. Which is which is really good, um, but that was something that 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 really surprised me. And what also really surprised me actually was that Wonder Woman is not the first female superhero. Actually, Miss Fury is technically the the the, the first female superhero. Um, she was. I, I, I think I talked about this in the introduction. Why I then paid attention to Wonder Woman instead of Miss Fury, which is that Miss Fury was. Um, a, uh, a strip in a newspaper um, at this, and Wonder Woman was like an actual comic book. 
Um, so it's like syndicated strip versus comic books. But syndication strips is where all superheroes originated, really. Um, but yeah, basically, Wonder Woman was not the very first female superhero. And that really surprised me as well, because I didn't know that. So what are you working on now? Uh, I'm actually like on my way out of academia, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't. I um, tried for a few years. But I actually haven't had an academic position since I stopped teaching as part of my PhD. Um, it's just a very hard industry to break in, to break through in. Um, and I've had a few, I've had most of my cohort actually have left either because they wanted to or because they couldn't get through. Um, and so I think like the latest project that I had in mind, I actually wanted to talk about um, medical apartheid and how that influences ideas in superhero comic books. Um, so this idea of uh, the medical industry and um, how it has treated black people as if they don't have proper ownership over their own bodies and how we see in comics that we have several black superheroes who have had, you know, illegal experimentation done on them that they didn't give consent to, etc. So I kind of wanted to dig into that more, um, but I couldn't get the funding. So unfortunately... Um, I might come back to it um, after a little break, but at the moment, I'm not really working on anything. Well, I do hope that you come back to it because you are clearly a very committed and um, expert researcher of this field. And I look forward to reading more of your work. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Esther. I really enjoyed this book and our conversation. So thank you. No, thank you so much for having me. It's actually been really fun to, to dig back into the book because, you, you know, when you finish a book, you're like, I can't look at it. I can't look at it anymore. Um, so it's actually been really fun to kind of go back and I had to reread bits of it in preparation for this. It's actually been really fun to, to, to come back to it again. Well, I I've, yeah. I have been joined by Esther D- do Dow, um, the author of Hot Pants and Spandex Suits, Gender Representation in American Superhero Comic Books, published by Rutgers University Press in 2021. Available, I am sure, at the Rutgers University Press website, right? Yes, yes. And Amazon. Don't say it. It is there as well. No, sorry. <laughs> just cut that. Just cut that. The Waterstones website, if you have Waterstones in America, the yeah. Waterstones website. Or your favorite independent bookseller online. Yes. <laughs> Very so true. thank you for joining me today, Esther. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.